Tonight, I'd like for us to uh, spend a little bit of time in Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it. Uh, and let's do just a little bit of a study from Acts 17. You know, as a preacher, and I'm sure Edwin and James or whoever could attest to this, one, one of the hard things about preaching is, what do I preach next week? That Sunday rolls around every week. I've noticed that. There's a Sunday every week. And uh, you have to have something to say. And, and I had somebody one time say, well, I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, you got the Bible and there's a lot of sermons in there. Yes, there are. Uh, but he has never preached, uh, the guy that said that. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want to, I'm going to maybe borrow a sermon uh, from the Apostle Paul, or at least pick out a few points from what Paul had to say in Acts chapter 17. There aren't a whole lot of sermons recorded in the Bible. Uh, what comes to mind right off the bat is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gave that three-chapter long discourse, uh, great challenging sermon from Jesus. But if I were to get beyond uh, what Jesus uh, taught in the Sermon on the Mount, I might turn to Acts 17 and look at some of the reasoning that the Apostle Paul used in this chapter. Because what he said to those people in Athens is just as um, applicable to us today and we can learn and need to learn uh, some of the same truths that he tried to express to them. We need to learn those today. So I want to just go through and, and pick out a few things with you tonight from Acts chapter 17. First of all, just to give you a little bit of a background, as we enter into Acts 17, Paul is on a second missionary journey. He's at Thessalonica, and uh, he's been preaching. It was his custom, his habit to go where the people were. Uh, those who were interested in religious things. And so on the Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue and, and take that opportunity to get up and speak and talk about Jesus and how he fulfilled the, the, the prophecies uh, that they knew very well from the Old Testament scriptures. They were looking for a Messiah, but they didn't necessarily know that he had come. And we're removed from Jerusalem here. Uh, these people may not have known what had taken place in the man Jesus who had lived all the way over in Galilee. They're all the way over in, here in Asia Minor. And so uh, he took this opportunity. And I think it's interesting to note what he says in verse 2, that when he met with them, that he reasoned with them. In verse 3, he explained and demonstrated that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He reasoned, demonstrated, and explained. Now, you would think that would result in converts. I'm, I'm going to lay this out for you. I'm going to reason with you, use intellect, use logic. I'm going to explain it so that you can understand it. And I'm going to demonstrate that it's true. I'm going to prove that this is what actually took place. Well, what was the result? Well, verse 4, some were persuaded. But then he talks about in verse 5, some who were not persuaded. And they became envious and caused all kind of problems for Paul. Accusing him of turning the world upside down. Accusing him of doing things that were unlawful. Accusing him of rejecting Caesar and calling for a new allegiance to a new king, Jesus the Christ. And so they had quite a stir and had to whisk 
Paul away out of Thessalonica uh, for fear of his life. So he goes on to the city of Berea. And he begins to do the same thing there. He went and preached in the synagogues there. And when um, the Jews from Thessalonica heard that he just kind of moved on and was doing the same thing down the road, they showed up there and got everything stirred up. And, and again, he had to escape from that city. And, and he went on, they, they sent him on to Athens. So now Paul was in Athens. He's run from his life or for his life twice. And uh, in Athens, he, he sees that these people are very religious. He's been preaching in the synagogues there, just like he had been elsewhere. And if you'll pick up with me in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and said to him, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Areopagus sorry, uh, saying, may we know that this new, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know about these things and what they mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else uh, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So Paul is preaching and these philosophers get wind that he's preaching and it's something new. They've never heard it before. A risen Savior A man, a savior, a god who was nailed to a cross and put to death and rose again. And, hey, what is this? This is new. And these guys spent all day long just doing that. Uh, They were so, you know, like fill our minds, you know, ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth almost. Um, They just wanted to hear new things, new ideas. And um, so they invite Paul to Areopagus, and I, somebody this, this evening when they came in, I, I have those outlines back there if you want to pick them up, and uh, it, it, the title of the lesson was Lessons from Areopagus, and somebody said, I've never heard anybody preach about asparagus before. Uh, so when I first said that, I almost said asparagus because of that unnamed person. But anyway, Areopagus. Mars Hill, in other words. Um, Ares was the, the Greek god for war. Mars was the Roman god. And we're in Greece here, so uh, your Bibles may say Mars Hill, but uh, Areopagus is what we're talking about. And these philosophers are there. They're, they're here. They're gathered together. They're going to hear Paul preach. Tell me about this man, this God that you are proclaiming that I don't know anything about. And so that's the background to a sermon. And I'd like for us to pick up and see if we can just pick out about five lessons from Paul's sermon that I think is worthy of our consideration. And the first one is this, that Christianity seems strange to a lot of people because it's different and it's something they haven't heard before. The purity of New Testament and the simplicity of New Testament 
worship and the simplicity of New Testament Christianity is a far cry. And some people have never seen it as long as they've lived. They've seen um, innovations, man-made addendums tagged on. They've seen a structure created by man and, and hoops you have to jump through that you don't read in the Bible, but, but they've been added through the years. And, and they don't know what true Christianity looks like. It's different to them. And I must say, it must be liberating as well. Um, because Jesus uh, has come to set us free. But let's look in verses 18 through 20. Read with me. These philosophers come and, and they, they say, you know, he's a proclaimer of foreign gods. And so they said, you know, we want to hear more about this because we, we like new stuff. And we've never heard about this God that that you're going to be talking about. Here's a truth that we need to consider. If we don't go over the fundamentals, Christianity can be lost to a generation. It can sound so strange and so foreign to our children if we don't teach our children the truth. You see, some of us have had the luxury of growing up in Christian homes and going to church in churches where the truth has been taught very clearly and and very distinctly, and, and you know those basic truths. Some people haven't had that luxury. And if we don't stand up and preach the truth and the simplicity of the truth and the clarity, and it all sounds weird. You know, we get out on our own, we leave home, we, we don't have mom and dad making decisions for us anymore, and we hear people say, you know, things, and we say, well, that, that does sound kind of weird. I don't, know, I don't know why we believed that or did that. But I'm telling you, if we don't teach our children, we can lose Christianity to what they might think is irrelevancy and just strange. You guys are just strange. In the second century, well, the first century, you can read about it in the Bible, but in the second century and early on, um, if you were to talk about baptism, everybody understood baptism was for the remission of sins. Nobody argued about John 3, 5 and said it has something to do with amniotic fluid and all those kind of things. Um, everybody understood that baptism was uh, um, something that Jesus had that that he instituted, and it was connected to salvation for the remission of sins. People understood that. But through the years, that became changed, and people began to talk about different notions. And, and now, a couple thousand years later, the world thinks, what? Baptism for salvation? You have to be baptized to receive the forgiveness of sins? I've never heard that. I don't know about that. You see, it's a fundamental truth. But now it seems strange because some have failed to teach it. And that's true with any doctrine of Christ. We we need to stand up and proclaim the truth and, and do it in love and clarity. We need to do as Paul did. We need to reason and explain and demonstrate the truth, not only for our generation but for our children so that when they hear it, it won't sound strange. It, it won't be the sound of some new thing. It'll be old truth. All right, so that's the first thing. Second thing that I'd like to pick out from his lesson is that being religious alone isn't sufficient. Look at what it says. If you pick up in verse 22, 
Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. They were religious, hyper-religious. They didn't want to miss anybody. They believed in a plurality of deities. They, they, and, and so many that they, well, let's not make sure, let's make sure we don't miss one. Let's, let's set one up just in case. We'll just call him to the unknown God. We'll worship. We don't want to miss. We don't want to slight any deity. And so that's what they did. Was that good enough? No. Paul said, listen, you're too superstitious. You're too religious. You need to learn about the one true and living God. And the fact that Paul um, tried to correct their thinking here should tell us that, you know, how often have we heard, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You know, it's, it's right here. Are you sincere? Are you following what you believe to the best of your ability? Are you trying to live a good life and, and, and be kind to people and, and be a righteous person? Um, that's all that matters. Paul says otherwise. These people were religious. Man, they were a worshiping group of people. And by the way, have you ever known people that come to church all the time? They're good at worshiping, but they may not be so good at serving through the week. They may not be good at taking what they do here out into the community and living uh, and interacting with, with the world. Paul says, I want to I talk to you about this God that you're worshiping that you don't really know. And he elevates that deity, that, that God of heaven. He, he brings him above all the others and, and explains why that. They are not sufficient. Here's a third thing that I want us to look at. Paul made it clear that we're made in the image of God, and God is not made in our image. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? That's just not the God I serve. Um, You know, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't think that's the God that I love. He wouldn't believe that. He wouldn't do those things. He wouldn't uh, have me do this or that. The God I love, um, he wants me to be happy. And uh, so they justify. See, here's what happens. People begin to create God in their own image instead of God creating us in his own image and after his likeness. We have fashioned God according to our likes. I heard a man, and his name has just left me, but he was commenting on a on a theology book, and um, theology is a study of God, obviously. and And he said the problem with theology is that it's God centered and not man centered. I thought, well, that is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Uh, theology should be God centered. It's a study of God, and and it. Theology isn't man-centered, um, but that's, that's how warped some people have it. Oh, God is just there to, to serve us. Man, he is so all about us that 
Even when we talk about him, we've got to talk about us. We can't just praise and get to know him. Um, it, it matters. Uh, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 24, beginning. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell in on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Um, It's interesting that as Paul is on this place with all these monuments, all these idols and People, priests scurrying around, I'm sure, and and uh, accepting sacrifices and all the things that were involved. Just a busy, busy place of of worshiping people. Paul says, you know, this God that I'm talking about, you don't serve him like this. He doesn't live in a temple. Well, he made all things. And think of how incongruous it is for them to be... They made these deities. They crafted them with their own hands. They set them upright. God isn't served like... Who, who's the creator here? I thought it was God. Then why are we creating these idols? Doesn't make sense, does it? God doesn't need a house built for him. He doesn't need a dwelling place. He doesn't need people tending to him in that fashion. He's God. He made all things. And so God is more than um, just an idol made and fashioned by man, made in man's image. He made man in his image. Here's the next point. We're all going to have to answer for our lives one day. Look at what he says in verse 30 and 31. Truly the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. We're going to have to answer. Um, The book of Revelation talks about an occasion. I don't think it's the final judgment, but it was a judgment of God upon the people because of their wickedness and their conflict with the church and so forth. Um, He talked about those upon whom God would bring judgment, and they, while they even, to escape the judgment of God, they desired that the mountains fall upon them, just crush them and hide them from the presence of God. Um, You can't do that. You're going to have to someday stand before God. I know Philippians talks about how that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, Philippians chapter 2. But in Romans, Paul said in that passage that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's not a matter of whether we will. It's a matter of what our position will be when we do it. 
Will we be doing it willfully because that's what we've chosen to do with our life? Or will we be forced at that time to acknowledge, oh man, I was wrong. And he really is Lord. Uh, By then it's too late. God, Paul says, listen, there was a time when God tolerated ignorance. Now, we can go into a discussion about why that is. Why did God let certain things go on that weren't his ideal will in the Old Testament? I, I have some theories, but they're just that, and, and they're not worth our time. But why did he do it? I, I'm not sure, but I know that he did. He says he did. And I can give you examples of some of those things. God didn't want Israel to have a king, but he gave them one. It wasn't his ideal will. He says in Hosea, I gave them a king in my anger. I, I didn't want them to have it, but... He, did, he let him have it. Um, he didn't approve of polygamy. That wasn't his ideal will. From the beginning, it was not so. But he allowed men to have more than one wife during that time. But here's the thing. Now, he commands all men everywhere to repent. If you look, uh, oftentimes we miss this passage, but it helps to explain what he's saying. If you look at Acts chapter 14 and verse 16... I think you have a, almost the same thing, just a little different verbiage here. It says, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. There was a time when God permitted certain things. But that time isn't anymore. Paul said after the death of Jesus, hey, listen, God at one time accepted and allowed, tolerated Certain things less than his ideal will, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And if you don't, I want you to know there's going to be a judgment. You see, that God of heaven, that, that God that you don't really know, but you're worshiping ignorantly, that God has set up a day in which he's going to judge everybody, and the standard will be righteousness in his son. And his son will be appointed to be the judge, the the one that I'm proclaiming to you that raised from the dead. He will be our judge. There's There's a day of accountability. And then the last point is this. The message preached is not going to always have the effect that we want. And it's not always going to resonate the same in two people hearing the same sermon. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 17, verses 32 through 34. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Um, Among them, Dionysus and the, the Areopagites, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So here's the sermon he preaches. Some said, that's crazy. What, what do you, th- that's just crazy. Others said, you know, I'd like to talk to you some more about that. A little bit later though. And some said, you got my attention. I- I'm, I'm following you. The same truth can be preached and have different reactions in people's lives. It's what we see in the early part of the chapter. He reasoned, he explained, he demonstrated that Jesus was the Christ. And some believed and some didn't. You know, you go to Acts chapter 2 and 
they were cut to the heart, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And 3,000 souls were baptized. You jump over to Acts chapter 7, they hear a sermon, and they too are cut to the heart, and they pick up stones and kill the messenger. Same message, different results. It's kind of like 32 degrees Fahrenheit. What is that? Well, depends. It's the point at which water freezes, or it's also the point at which ice melts. Depends on which way you're going, doesn't it? It's that it's that teetering point where it. But the direction is determined whether it's melting or or freezing. And that's that's what we have here. The gospel of Christ produces that effect on people today. And those who are seeking God, well, they're going to hear it, and they're going to be cut to the heart, and they're going to repent. And those who have hard hearts and who have some baggage that won't let them open their eyes to the truth, they're going to dismiss it. So Paul came... He preached Jesus to a bunch of religious folks. I don't know that you would say it's the ideal audience. They were so pluralistic. They accepted everything. And to speak a definitive message to a group of people, well, it almost sounds like preaching today, doesn't it? Um, To preach the singularity of Jesus Christ as Savior to a pluralistic world in which we live that everything goes. Don't judge anything or anybody. That's what Paul did then. And that's what we're doing today or trying to do today. But as he preached this message, he preached a resurrected Savior who is the creator of all things and to whom someday we must give accounts. That's a pretty good message to share with folks. That God is our creator and he calls us to righteous living and we'll have to give an answer to him. And I would encourage you to do that. And as you do that, and as you go your way and take the advantages and the opportunities that you have this week, as you do that, remember that you'll probably get three reactions. The three that Paul got at at Areopagus. He got people who mocked, said, you're crazy. That doesn't make any sense. He got some that weren't ready to commit, but they said, we'll just talk to you later about this. And then there were some who said, I believe you. Well, as a matter of fact, as you take that message to your friends and see those reactions, how about this? Might we have that reaction here tonight, those same three? There may be some here for reasons other than what we would hope who just say, I think this whole thing's just silly. I don't believe in a resurrected Lord. I just, I don't buy it. There may be some who say, you know, I think I believe it, but I'm not ready to do anything about it today, maybe later. And there may be some tonight that are saying, you know what, tonight's tonight, I need to do what's right. And I'm going to, we're going to sing an invitation song. And when that song gets started, I'm going to come down the aisle and I'm going to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to give my life to him because there is a day of judgment and I want to be saved. If you're here tonight, how are you going to respond to the message of Christ? What are you going to do about this risen Lord who will someday be our judge? You can chalk it off as foolishness. 
You can put it off by procrastination, or you can respond tonight and say, I want to be saved. I need a Savior. If you need to respond tonight, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.